0: All right, welcome everyone back to New Books in Education on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Allen, and I'm very excited today to have uh, Dr. Michael S. Roth, who is the current president of Wesleyan University. But I think more importantly uh, for our podcast and our audience, he's also a writer, historian, teacher, educator, and author of uh, Beyond the University, Why Liberal Education Matters from Yale University Press. And uh, I think this book is, is, is very nice because it provides uh, sort of a sweeping historical account of uh, important educational thought uh, throughout history. And so uh, I'm really glad to bring just years and years of, of, of high-level education, uh, historical thought uh, from, from this particular author. So uh, Dr. Roth, thank you for uh, joining me today. It's my pleasure. Great to be with you. All right, fantastic. If you could, maybe you can kind of tell our audience uh, sort of how you got to uh, where you're where you're at academically. You know, how you got into education or, or more history as well. Uh, and if you could just maybe go into that a little bit.
1: Sure, happy to do it. I, I uh, did not expect to be going into education. I guess uh, way back when, when I was a college student, I was interested in. Um, Uh, psychopathology and worked in uh, uh, mental hospitals and became interested in philosophy and history and really couldn't uh, quite figure out how to put them together to choose among them. And uh, I was fortunate to have been a student uh, here at Wesleyan in the 70s when um, a very uh, bold dean said to me, Well, why choose, man, (laughs) and why not just uh, continue to follow the things that interest you? And, uh, I kind of ran with that advice. I did go on, uh, to get a PhD in history at Princeton. Uh, but my first book was in, uh, on Freud and psychoanalysis and my dissertation, uh, that book was based on my senior thesis at Wesleyan and my dissertation at Princeton was on the history of philosophy, uh, and of philosophers of history in, in France in the 20th century. And so, um, uh, I kind of realized at that point when I got my first job in the Claremont Colleges uh, at Scripps College and the Claremont Graduate School in California that I really – my subject was how people make sense of the of the past. Uh, and the um, whether it was psychology, uh, psychoanalysis, history, philosophy, what interested me was in how people made sense of the past and how they used the past or didn't. Uh, in their variety of endeavors. And so uh, at at Claremont, I I was a professor of history initially. I I started there in 1983, just a few years older than my students' time. And uh, uh, in in a few years, I had these two books come out and then was working on another one. And uh, I was uh, named uh, the Hartley Burr Alexander Professor of Humanities, which really allowed me to teach in, in uh, all the, any discipline I, I wanted, really. And I started teaching in film and philosophy, and I did some work in American history. But uh, the next couple of projects I had had to do with, uh, again, how people make sense of the past. I wrote a book about trauma and history, about the construction of memory. I left Claremont to go work at the Getty Center um, to run a research program there at the think tank they have, the Getty Research Institute. Uh, So I'm not an art historian, but I was surrounded by art historians, and I learned a lot from them. And um, while there, so this would have been in the 90s, uh, I curated a a big show on Freud and psychoanalysis from my earlier work uh, at the Library of Congress. And that show uh, traveled all over the world, so I was fortunate to have that kind of experience with the big museums uh, internationally, and while that was happening, I was invited to uh, uh, become president of the California College of the Arts, then California College of Arts and Crafts in Oakland and San Francisco. And there again, I remember telling them, I, you know, I'm not an artist. I think you've got the wrong guy. And they said, no, no, uh, we know uh, about your work. I had written on photography and film, and um, I didn't know anything about running a uh a uh, school though i i at the getty i gave money away which uh uh is not as uh, it's not as easy as it sounds but it's not all that difficult either <laughs> uh and but i went up to the bay area my wife is also an academic and we um we, i was uh the president of the cca uh and it was a great experience i loved the work it was very interesting and um at some point while there uh, wesleyan asked me if i would Come and talk to them about the presidency of Wesleyan, and since Wesleyan had changed my life so dramatically, my parents didn't go to college. Uh, I didn't really know anybody who was a professor before I got to college, uh, and uh, it, Wesleyan really so transformed my my views of the world that when they asked me to come and talk to them about the presidency, I of course couldn't resist and. Uh, and then when they invited me to be a president in 2007, uh, it, it was very, uh, very fulfilling. And it's been a wonderfully interesting, uh, role to have. I still teach every semester. I teach history and philosophy and occasionally art history <laughs> at Westland. They let me do that because i I guess they have to now that I'm president. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I, I finished a book of essays a few years ago on which is around trauma and memory, with a small section on education. And that led me to want to write a book about uh, liberal education, which, of course, is under siege in the United States. And I'm not an American historian. All my work has been in Europe and mostly in France. But I decided to write a book about the American tradition of liberal education Mm -hmm. because so many of the debates that we're having today about liberal education, I found were actually debates that were going on in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Mm-hmm. And so um, my friends in American history uh, heard this with great trepidation that I was going to try to write a book uh, uh, in this field, and I you know, got in touch with the people at Yale. They were interested, and so I've, over the last few years, I've had taken some time in the summer especially to get some of the research done and to write this short book uh, beyond the university.
0: Yeah, fantastic, and it, it sounds like you know because you have you know sort of so many uh, fields that you that you've been into. I think it probably plays nicely uh, together with this book. Um, you kind of open up the the book with uh, your own experience teaching, which I think is is important, and you talk about sort of some of the things that are changing with with today's education, and specifically one thing that we're all I think trying to grapple with, trying to figure out. Are uh, moocs uh, massively open online courses? Uh, can, can you maybe talk about your experience with uh, moocs and sort of how does it fit into to the idea of liberal education?
1: Well, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't think that um, liberal ed- education depends on the field you're, you're teaching or that you're learning. Uh, nor do I, I think it necessarily depends on the size of the classroom. Uh, and so. I think it does depend on having an open a contextual and conceptual approach to whatever subject matter you're engaging in mm-hmm. uh and so uh i i've taught a, a couple of books now with uh, a part in partnership with coursera uh, and the first is a kind of classic humani- classic humanities course it's a i call it a good enough books course uh most would have been called a great books course in the old days uh, called the modern and the postmodern mm-hmm. we start with Immanuel uh, Kant and jean-jacques Rousseau and we end in the present uh, with uh, Richard Rorty and uh, and Judith Butler and uh, and, uh, and, uh, Bruno uh, uh, and and Bruno Latour and and the so the course every week it's a different uh, author and um, and so it, there's there's no way in the world that a course like this, which I've been teaching on campuses for the last 15 years, I guess, in one form or another, there's no way a class like this wouldn't be thought of as a liberal arts class or a course in liberal education when you give it on campus. Mm-hmm. And lately, because I'm the president and I teach large classes, I, I've given this class for six graduate students uh, at, at, at different times, but I've also now given it to about 100 people every time I I teach you. So it occurred to me, why wouldn't it work um, uh, if I gave it to several thousand people? Mm. And uh, you know, one answer would be because uh, well, they can't talk back to you. That's it, and that's not a bad answer. They can't ask me questions um, directly while I'm speaking because I don't ever lecture. I I talk with my class like I'm talking to you. Mm. Uh, and so I, uh, with Coursera, we constructed a class that, uh, although it has video lectures, which are, uh, are don't change, <laughs> they're the same, um, Every uh, after every lecture there are possibilities for students to interact with one another via a discussion boards um, and exchange their papers and exchange their ideas. And then we also have Google Hangouts uh, where... Students win the right to have an a ongoing discussion with uh, the professor, with me, and then that um, uh, is broadcast to everyone. And now there's a new thing we have called TalkAbouts, which allows students to sign up for discussion sessions uh, automatically, and they join other students on dis- in discussion sessions. Mm-hmm. And so although it's different from teaching on campus, it didn't seem to me that that difference had anything to do with the goals of Google education. I still want them to learn critical and creative thinking. I still want them to be absorbed in great works of literature and art. I still show them um, you know, the slides of the painters or the architects. We still read Virginia Woolf. and try to understand um, uh, what that book has to teach us uh, about uh, its own time and ours. So uh, the fact that it's big doesn't seem to compromise um, the, the learning goals uh, uh, that I have for the class it's not a seminar that would be quite different but i don't think anyone has really argued that the only way to have liberal education is in a seminar i do think that's a preferable way i mean it's it's just it's very expensive and you know you you only interacting with you know 10 people at a time or 20 perhaps um, and but if you're going to have a class with i don't know what the number is 50 75 people why not have a class, take that class and make it much bigger if you can ensure possibilities for discussion and conversation. Mm. Now, the real weakness in the model so far is that, uh, unlike my class at Wesleyan and in other places I've taught, um, they're, they're not being graded by the professor or by even by a TA. They're getting comments on their papers uh, from other students. Mm. And, and, and it's true that, that that's, very, that's really variable. It's not so much about the grades, because at places like uh, Wesleyan or the Claremont Colleges or the Ivy League schools, everybody gets an A, apparently. Um, um, So it's not about grades, but it's about the quality of the feedback you get. And I do have students uh, in my class, in modern and postmodern, who, you know, some of the feedback they've gotten has not been that helpful. And and that's something we're still still trying to design uh, solutions to. But I think that's a small price to pay for having the experience of being in a class um, with people who have Ph.D.s, people who are in middle school, people who are in Bangladesh, people who are in New York, people who are in Nairobi, people who are in Buenos Aires. That's an incredible opportunity for students to interact with one another around the world. I have students from 100 different countries in that class Mm -hmm. and they can interact with one another. Now, it is also true, I had professors in that class who had PhDs in the fields that we're uh, talking about, and their papers would be graded by a middle school student who's, for whom English might be the th- her third language. Um, and, you know, they're not going to get the greatest feedback that way. But what we did to solve that problem, or at least to address it, was to say that when you write a short paper on Flaubert, um, you when you send it in, you, you, you get feedback from five different people. Mm-hmm. And so you, if two of those uh, 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 folks are, are giving you good feedback, I think it's a winning proposition. Mm-hmm. But to even make it a little bit more beneficial, you offer to all our students the opportunity to post their papers on uh, the, the course's website and get feedback from whoever wanted to read the work. Mm-hmm. So it's much more collective and enterprise than most of my lecture classes have been. So, you know, when I teach the class at WestN, the student hands me the paper and gets comments back from me or from my assistant, um, but they don't, no one else in the class knows what they've written. In this MOOC, everybody can see is, uh, the papers of those who post them. So, you know, it's 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 an, it's still an experiment. I, I mean, I've had a couple of hundred thousand students sign up for my classes in the last two years. Um, that's an incredible little number for a guy like me who's taught at small places, but only you know, a very small percentage of those people will actually do all the work. They, they don't sign up intending to do all the work. A small percentage of them will do all the work, will hand in papers, will get their assignments on time, will do the reading. Mm-hmm. and and. But for me, even though that's just a handful, that's a, thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And if I can um, help thousands of people have greater access to Nietzsche and uh, – uh, 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 Slabert and Flaubert and Baudelaire and, um, and Horkheimer and Adorno, that sounds pretty cool to me. That does seem to me like liberal education.
0: Right, right. And it's, it's certainly great, um, maybe a modern example of, of some of these sort of older philosophies that you sort of uh, talk about throughout the book. And if you want, uh, maybe just we can start to go into the uh, the first chapter or after the introduction, um, which you title uh, from taking the world to transforming the self. And you open up with uh, one of the United States founding fathers, you know Thomas Jefferson, and you know yeah. he, he's very famous for for his uh, education stance, which which may have been different from from some of the other founding fathers. But can can you kind of go into what his Conception of education is, and then if you you know if you want at the end you can kind of talk uh, a little bit about some of the criticisms, especially if you're thinking of uh, the the African Americans or the slave population who who uh, were in the United States then as well.
1: Sure. So you know, Jeff, Jefferson uh, was a, an Enlightenment guy, and and so he really has uh, a theory of education that comes out of uh, the uh, 18th century Enlightenment. Especially uh, in uh, 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 the English-speaking world, and uh, but his his decisive intervention in the U.S. was to create in the University of Virginia uh, a uh, school that would be uh, not only geared to science and inquiry, but would be geared to science and inquiry in such a way as to promote the free choice of the students who were enrolled therein. Mm -hmm. By which I mean, Jefferson thought that um, most schools, when you began, they slotted you into a a field of study that predetermined how uh, what the things you would learn and what you would do when you graduated. He wanted to create instead a school that would allow you to choose what you're going to do on the basis of what you were learning, rather than on the basis of who your parents were or, or, and what they set out for you to do, that your in, the inquiry itself would lead you to make choices that would lead to further inquiry and make you make other choices, uh, and uh, and so and that, that that all subjects that could be uh, 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 employed in the world should be taught uh, at the university. Uh, that is, they, these are should be subjects of Of live discussion and not just uh, rote memorization and so um, you know Jeff and and Jefferson felt that uh, it was absolutely crucial to have these institutions because otherwise um, uh, 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 the people would through their ignorance be more likely to be uh, uh, oppressed by people with power money and and by the, the government so so in addition to creating an uh, academic environment based on choice and scientific inquiry, he, um, he he thought it was very important that the country find ways to finance the education of those people without the means to do so themselves. Um, he didn't succeed in this regard uh, to, uh, to the extent he wanted. That is, it takes more taxes. Mm. And uh, in Virginia, in his, in his day just like uh, in most states in our day, they were loath to pay for the education of uh, their young citizens. He regarded that, and I think he was absolutely right, as a grave mistake, uh, because uh, what what you would get is that people who were dominating society at the time would ensure that their own progeny got the advantages, um, and the most talented people might be left by the wayside because they never had access to these education and then he thought you would get basically an un, what he called an unnatural aristocracy. That is, people with power and could dominate, but who are pretty stupid. Um, and, um, and you would not allow the, the kind of uh, uh, rejuvenation of society uh, by giving those people with talent. Not everybody uh, has endowed with talents in the same way, but giving those people with talent the ability to um, actualize their talents mm-hmm. through education. So Jeff- and Jefferson, um, so in that sense, he had kind a of very democratic view of education as both, both that you should have access to education if you had the talents and also that, that access to education would be a way for the citizens to protect themselves against the tyranny of bureaucracy and government. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the criticism, of course, was well, that Jefferson had a very limited notion of who could be talented. Mm-hmm. Um, and so women were compromised, uh, in his view, by their gender. Uh, uh, Indian Native Americans uh, uh, were somewhat compromised as well. And then, of course, African-Americans, he, he, he did not think would have the capacity uh, for this. Uh, um, and what I found very interesting was that even uh, uh, in the you know, kind of middle of the uh, 1800s, before the Civil War, that uh, African-American writers uh, 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 used a Jeffersonian rhetoric to critique Jefferson. So David Walker, for example, who uh, writes this extraordinary pamphlet about um, how uh, slaves have to rebel, really, have to stand up for themselves and, through education, overturn uh, their masters. Uh, he His rhetoric against the Jeffersonian racism is completely Jeffersonian. That is, education will allow people of talent to protect the citizenry against tyranny and will allow people of talent to rise to uh, uh, appropriate heights. Um, Education for Walker was absolutely key. And Frederick Douglass writes his autobiography. Um, uh, He is uh, a great critic of American racism. He Mm -hmm. has a fantastic Fourth of July speech. Uh, uh, about uh, you know, white people declaring their independence while they hold, slave, hold slaves, you know, is, is, a, is a scorching indictment of American racism. Yet he too uses a kind of Jeffersonian rhetoric about um, the power of education to unslave you, right? To unslave you, to set you free, and that led me to um, you know Emerson eventually, who for whom also education sets you free. But what he meant by setting you free was less getting uh, uh concrete slavery and mm-hmm. less protecting you against the government. But setting you free by setting you uh, – uh, uh, giving you the permission, ability to be a- apart from the herd, mm-hmm. the common crowd. With Ralph Waldo Emerson, who I write about it, at some length in that chapter, um, uh, uh, education should give you the possibility for self-transformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said that colleges do their work when they incite young souls of flame, you know, and that we, we learn to animate the world uh, through education. Um, uh, education should make you self-reliant, but not just economically, politically, but make you self-reliant uh, existentially and spiritually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, 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 this this is a belief in education that is profound but it's a belief in education as a vehicle for not conforming to the status quo. Mm-hmm. And I think that is very American. I don't You know, mm-hmm. the European traditions of liberal arts have a lot to do with putting you in a place, mm-hmm. putting you in a dish. The American views of liberal education really had to had to do with setting you free one mm-hmm. way or another, um, and um, I, I thought that was uh, yeah. very powerful. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think that... Yeah. I mean, you start talking about the uh, European style of education. Moving along right, right to the next chapter, uh, pragmatism from autonomy uh, to recognition, uh, you, you do talk about uh, sort of the uh, German education and some of the, uh, some of the people or thinkers, uh, uh, W.B. Du Bois, for, for one, who had sort of this experience over in Germany um, so, and I, I really like that chapter. Uh, as someone who's interested in sort of international education and exchange specifically, I think it was uh, very insightful. Um, can you kind of talk about his experience there and, and, and what what sort of that meant and, and how it
1: changed? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, Du Bois is a great figure, as as is Jane Adams, who I also talk about in this chapter. Uh, both of whom go to Europe and uh, and in some ways reject European models, but learn from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know Du Bois is fascinating. I mean, he goes to Europe as a, as, a, as an African American. He is treated with a different kind of condescension in Europe than he would be by the kind of overt racism, the violent racism that he experienced in the United States, especially when he was in the South. Um, but what he also experienced in uh, Berlin and 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 uh, even before he went to Berlin in Harvard. Was the what was happening in American education in the second half of the nineteenth century was that the research university was growing and growing as a vehicle for specialization, mm-hmm. and um, and so um, specialization becomes the sign of sophistication in uh, American elite universities uh, in the, at the late eighteen hundreds and into the well, uh, throughout the twentieth century really. Um, and, and I think that the uh, sp- specialization was uh, allowed the research university to tie the sciences and the social sciences to concrete needs that, um, that the countries had or the economy had. Uh, but it also had a great tension with liberal education because specialization uh, might result in the f- people at one part of the university or the college um, having great expertise, but be, com- being completely incapable of talking to people from another part of the college. Um, and, and so you graduate, uh, specialists, uh, you, uh, who really could have very little capacity to translate their own thinking, their own ways of knowing, uh, for other kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the pragmatists, I think, um, uh, du Bois is certainly influenced by them I, I write about William James, I write about Jane and Adams, they were interested in a form of education though it might lead you deeply into a single subject would return you to the tasks at hand in the public sphere mm-hmm. return you to the tasks at hand of citizens, neighbors of, 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 of people who were just working together in society and for them, education was um, setting you free, but it was setting you free uh, to work with others at tasks that matter to people. And um, the danger they saw was that you could graduate people who were really good at something that nobody else cared about (laughs) and had no relevance to society. Um, And they wanted to make sure that the universities and colleges um, were giving their students the ability to to uh, think broadly, to act effectively, um, and to uh, take on responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, um, the, the, the pragmatism enters the picture for me in its insistence that knowledge is uh, uh, is, is really a habit of action. Mm-hmm. And a habit of action should be judged by its effects, mm-hmm. by what it makes happen in the world. Um, and it's not about its corresponding to an ideal or uh, uh, even to reality. It's about its effects in the world. And so what I argue for, as you know, in the last chapter of the book, is what I call pragmatic liberal education, a liberal education that shows its stuff by what you can do in the world. Now, what you can do might be to play the violin very well or to write poetry or to create uh, a design company. I mean, it could be – or a manufacturing institute – no matter what matters is that the ways of knowing at the university and college can be translated into the problems and opportunities that, that are significant for people who don't live at the university. Mm, right. And that's why I've entitled this book "Beyond the University" because I have, now myself having spent my almost my entire adult life at colleges and universities, except when I was at the Getty. Uh, 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 what we teach here, what people learn here shouldn't be judged just on the satisfaction they have with being at college. It should be judged by what they can do with it when they get out. Du Bois said education is empowerment. And it's it's. And so when people leave the university, and most people do, right, unlike <laughs> myself and my colleagues at the faculty, right. most people leave the university, right. uh, but they should leave with, by, by being empowered by ways of knowing and habits of action. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I do think that pragmatic liberal education um, is something that has served us well in this country for a long time um, and that we have to protect it against those who would you know, argue for a much more narrowing mentality or against that to a kind of effete uh, sophistication, neither of which will serve um, our, uh, our country in the future. Right, right.
0: And, and uh, I, I like, in, in this chapter, you kind of open up with uh, this nice question, uh, how relevant is it to talk citizenship and, and aversive thinking to students who first and foremost are desperate to escape from poverty? I think it's, you know, a, a great sort of setup for at least even, you know, about modern thoughts on this kind of thing, which, which you definitely interjected there, certainly. Um,
1: Absolutely. That was the debate between uh, Booker T. Washington and Du Bois. Mm-hmm. You know, Washington said, hey, look. It's very nice to talk about empowerment and aversive thinking and freedom. I'm, but these guys need to earn a living. And mm-hmm. as you say, today, that is what a lot of people are wondering. Okay, all this highfalutin rhetoric of a university president, but right. people to make a living. And I do think it's very important that we gives students empowerment, which includes uh, being able to support yourself, but it shouldn't be reduced to that. Mm-hmm. Because if it's reduced to that, then we will we will have the result of... of, of Unimaginative uh, uh, and anti egalitarian approach to a life after the
0: right. Well, I think that uh, definitely moves us into to the next uh, chapter: uh, controversies and critics. And again, I I love sort of the the historical narrative sprinkled throughout, talking about Benjamin Franklin mm-hmm. uh, and, and what was been Why was Benjamin Franklin uh, uh, so sort of? Um, not anti, but maybe a uh, critical uh, of Harvard or these other elite institutions, you know, writing in and, and under fake pen names uh, lampooning these places. Can, can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, uh, Ben Franklin, you know, he, he, he plays an important role in this uh, story. I mean, there's this new book out called Excellent Sheep, right, that uh, is about how Ivy League schools just, you know, train us to become docile um uh, members of a herd who, who don't have anything creative to do in the world. This is really what Ben Franklin was saying. You know, he did about Harvard students, they learn how to walk out of a drawing room or something like that. Or you learn how to drop names at a cocktail party. You know, it's that, right. it's that kind of critique that higher education has become a finishing school for the rich. Mm. Whether you learn how to cheer at a squash match or, uh, or, uh, or drink with the fraternity guys or, um, uh, or drop names with the, you know, the, uh, the artists and the theorists. Uh, that, that for Franklin wasn't what education should be about. Education mm-hmm. should be about giving you more capacity to make a difference in the world. So Franklin was very critical of, uh, kind of finishing school side of elite education. But at the same time, he started a reading group, he started a book club, he starts the, the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and, and so, uh, He's no, he's a friend of liberal education who worries that the institutions that go under the name of higher education are losing their mission, uh, and chasing either the almighty dollar or, uh, the, the allure of sophistication.
0: Right. In fact, I, I actually uh, just interviewed uh, the author of Excellent Sheep, and that should be coming out uh, in the next couple of days on, on the uh, New Books in Education podcast, uh, Bill uh, DeRozanis. So, yes. glad, glad you glad you glad you mentioned it. Uh, I guess uh, moving along in this book, uh, you you kind of get into a section uh, talking about uh, sort of the the growth or change in sort of what we would what call like women's Education specifically talk about uh, uh, Smith College, uh, Vassar, and uh, Wellesley, and some some other uh, universities. So, what was sort of the conception, and how was that different than maybe uh, thinking before uh, for women's education?
1: Well, I, I, it, part of what happens is that uh, uh, these women's women's colleges spring up uh, to provide access to higher education for ambitious young women uh uh and 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 they because of the the traditional colleges and universities uh, most of which were closed to women Mm -hmm. wesleyan for example opened its doors to women in the last quarter of the 19th century Mm -hmm. but then kicked the women out in uh, 1914 or so um uh, because uh, they thought that they interrupted the manly sense of community that that the universities required so, women's colleges filled this void, and they also expanded the curriculum in certain ways, especially towards the arts um, uh, and um, and towards um, uh, and, and towards the. In some ways, the, the traditional liberal arts fields became, um, you might say, feminized. That is, uh, Smith College, Mount Holyoke, uh, and then later Scripps College in the West, where I used to teach they became real centers for the humanities and for classics. Um, and um, whereas, you know, in the mid-1800s, professors of Greek would say, "Woman can't learn Greek, it's impossible. You know, by the 1920s, uh, if you kicked the women out of the classics department, there wouldn't be many people left of them. Um, and, uh, and so women's colleges play this really important role in uh, preserving uh, a certain approach to uh uh, humanities uh, learning and providing access to uh, empowerment for generations uh, uh, of women um, and they still do play that role I think you know there's a small group today women's colleges but they still play this role for lots of women uh, for whom the experience of learning side-by-side side with other women um, uh, is extraordinarily empowering. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and maybe you already kind of mentioned
0: uh, specialization a little bit, and this chapter kind of chronicles some moments in history and kind of tells us, like, why did we start moving in this direction or why did we start seeking it out? I, I, I know especially you, you talk about uh, one thing about Sputnik, which is, I think is an interesting uh, correlation to this. So can you kind of talk about some of those moments in history that have sort of pushed us in that direction?
1: Well, the first is in the late 19th century uh with the research university trying to emulate the German research seminar. And, and that's, you know, well-documented. And and um, and the, the the collegiate ideal in the 20th, early 20th century uh, pushes back against that to have a well-rounded student. Um, but in the wake of the Second World War and the demand of industry and science, um, there is a drive to ensure that American competitiveness uh, is... Uh, enhanced through investment in the sciences and uh, through um, uh, specialized research that brought together can build a, uh, elements to build on one another uh, and so the the research university uh, uh, grows ever more powerful and even colleges and even liberal arts colleges emulate the uh, the uh, recognition given to faculty uh, uh, that, that that is a standard in research universities so by that I mean that uh, at the big research universities in order to, to get ahead as a faculty member you had to uh, publish for your peers for people in your field and then for your subfield and then for your sub subfield and if you did really well you would get accolades you get raises you get tenure you get promotion um, all of that is very important the research university but by the uh, 1960s, this has become important uh, throughout colleges in the United States. Seeking prestige means seeking publication. Seeking publication occurs through specialization. Mm-hmm. So the well-rounded professor is seen uh, increasingly as anti-professional, a little bit of a dilettante. Uh, and that be- that really falls out of, out of favor uh, and you see this in the social sciences and the humanities, each discipline promoting a, specific, a specialized language. In the humanities, when I was uh, in graduate school and a young faculty member, you know, this happened through theory, right, through literary theory and deconstruction and then postmodernism, developing a whole language that was uh, incomprehensible for people outside of that specialization. But if you could learn to speak it well, you got uh, the, the, the rewards such as they are. From the, the academic community, and I think that this is um, hard to avoid. Every organization goes through these these kinds of brutalization and specialization. I think I mean I think that's part of how organizations mature. But what we have to make sure happens at colleges uh, and universities that care about undergraduate teaching is that the people who are teaching undergraduates realize that they are not producing clones of themselves. This is what Bill's book, I think, really focuses on, mm-hmm. is that so many faculty teach their students as if their students were going to become faculty. Yet they know they're not going to become faculty, right. and there's no room for them to become faculty. And what they should be learning are the things that Jefferson and Franklin and Emerson and boys and Jane Adams know were important. The kinds of empowering uh, uh, educational uh, uh, experiences that leads you to lifelong learning beyond the university. Absolutely. Uh, but to do that, the reward system for faculty have to change, or we have to make sure that we have faculty who can produce specialized research, but also could teach in a classroom and translate the research into other terms. Mm-hmm. That's a big word for me, translate, because so I do think that you, you, do make process, you do make progress in science and in other fields through specialization. I mean, I do think that, you know, you learn something uh, deeper by studying something at great length. But we need those people to also be able to translate their knowledge to undergraduates who are not going to follow them into that narrow area, uh, but will want to understand how that narrow area can be made relevant to their own thinking. Uh, I I was lucky to have professors like this when I was uh, an undergraduate, and even in graduate school, Professors who knew as much as anyone in the world about their specific subject, but who taught their students in such a way as to translate that specific expertise into um, uh, experiences that made a difference to us, given the issues we were facing in our own lives as individuals and then out in the world of politics as citizens.
0: Right, right. And is someone someone who, who is looking to break into academia uh, in a few years, and actually you already, you know, I, I teach undergraduate courses, You know, something that I I hope that I can, you know, give to my students as well. So definitely a
1: nice lesson for us. Uh, Yeah, I I use this phrase sometimes, intellectual cross-training. You have to be able, you know, if you're you're an academic, I mean, I've I've written books on French Hegelianism. It's pretty specialized. Um, And uh, and I still write, you know, for psychoanalytic journals from time to time. And I I can, I, I think that's important and I enjoy that kind of work. At the same time, you know, writing a book like Beyond the University, I am trying to reach a different audience. Mm-hmm. Standing in front of my students at Wesleyan or, or the thousands you know, online, I'm trying to um, communicate something essential about whatever the text is, let's say Flaubert. But I'm trying to do so in a way that matters not to you because you're Flaubert scholar, but to you because you're a, you're a person who's facing disillusionment and uh, um, and romantic disappointment, whatever it is, uh, or betrayal. And and, and the, being able to do both, I think, is really important. And I think, at, you know, at, at, at many schools, there are faculty who are doing both, who are consistently working in their own field, but also able to reach undergraduates at a uh, general level. Right, right.
0: Fantastic. And and just, uh, I guess, wrapping up the, the book, the final chapter, uh, reshaping ourselves and our society, our societies, you open up with uh, John Dewey, and you talk about this uh, dewey perspective. You know, I'm sitting here at uh, Columbia University Teachers College, so, you know, ah! there's a... There's a statue of him down the street, or down to right down uh, the hall from me. So, can you kind of talk about uh, why he's important to uh, to this uh, educational movement and, and what sort of his uh, that that perspective is?
1: Well, you know, Dewey was uh, uh, the most thoughtful philosopher in education uh, in ever in the United States, and uh, and he uh, he was able to uh, communicate the importance of um, a, a broad education, developing specific skills while at the same time empowering students to make choices in the world after graduation. So he he recognized very much that, you know, people have to get jobs after college. Now he was that, that would not be a shock to him that we want to make sure people can get jobs. He wasn't thinking they should just be able to talk about philosophy or Or literature or chemistry after graduation they need to work but he also thought as jefferson did that we shouldn't choose their professions before they're done learning but we have to give them a a wide variety of skills so that they can go off and find the kind of meaningful work that um, uh, that will enable them to be self-sufficient so dewey uh, for me is, is absolutely crucial he's also a philosopher who uh, unlike these guys today who talk about, oh, it's a shame the cab driver has a PhD or the bartender was a chemistry major. You know, for Dewey, that's a great thing that we have citizens uh, there who actually know lots of things. It's an important thing. Not just professors should know things, not just politicians should know things. Uh, having an educated citizen capable of continuing to learn on their own is an absolutely vital piece of democracy. I came to Dewey from um, my teacher, Richard Rorty, uh, at Princeton, and um, and uh, as I came to all these pragmatists, really, through Rorty. And I think that you know, what Rorty uh, emphasized uh, in Dewey and in the others was that um, uh, language isn't a mirror of reality. Language is a tool we use to do things in the world. And the same thing is true for me of education. It's not a mirror of reality. It's not supposed to be something you... It reflects the world. It's a it's a tool for us to have an impact on the world and to make it a better place for ourselves and the, one, the beings with whom we share it. Um, and so uh, that uh, chapter allows me to talk about um, uh, Dewey. Uh, uh, I had talked about James earlier in the book, and, and then in the end, uh, uh, Richard Rorty and, and Martha Nussbaum and a few others who are who are really uh, Focused on liberal education is an essential aspect of the American culture and economy today.
0: Mm-hmm. absolutely! And you kind of you, you kind of close off the chapter with this uh, with this story again. You know, maybe bookending from from another teaching perspective, where you actually went to China, and yeah. can you kind of tell me how that how uh, how that tied into your to your uh, liberal education.
1: Well, you're, it's very nice of you to focus on the fact that it, the bookends of the of this uh, volume are, are about teaching. Uh, because I do think of myself mostly as a, as a teacher uh, and that uh, they've been doing since, I guess, since the early 80s. Uh, and w- I was invited to, Ch- uh, to China to talk about liberal education at, at the Institute for Humanities at Peking University. And I, you know, I say in the book, I expected there would be 20 people there was it doing their vacation at school and everything. And uh, the place was packed. Questions were great. People were really interested in what the Chinese call education of the whole person. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, by which they mean, don't educate an appendage you know, just you're just a code piece of you that writes code, or just uh, the the uh, the piece of you that does mathematics, or the little part of you that is interested in uh, in uh, linguistics. Uh, we want an education of the whole person, so that you have a, an integrated approach to learning um, and an integrated approach to living. Uh, and uh, I had thought. Uh, that you know the Chinese uh, were, were so invested in test taking and a meritocracy based on exams that this notion and, and very narrowly contrived exams that they would be less hospitable to liberal education. But right now there's a great move in China to stimulate more creativity, create more innovation, and uh, and so they and they are starting liberal arts colleges and universities uh, and. Um, uh, and, and so I think that this notion of a uh, uh, vigorous, aversive thinking, which would be, of course, a change for the Chinese regime today, uh, based in, in uh, uh, higher education and learning from a variety of perspectives, which serve them well, um, and I think it's really important for us, in, uh, for us in America, because it serves us well to maintain the ecosystem of learning that liberal education has uh, developed here for the last almost 200 years.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, okay, great. I mean, if you could, uh, you know, uh, I I, want to know, you know, what's next. You just got, you know, done writing this book. What, what, what's next for you?
1: Well, I have a couple of other projects in mind. You know, I am, I am the president of the university, so it takes a a little bit of time to to, uh, do that. But, uh, uh, I, I, I have a few things uh, uh, that I'm, I'm working on. I have you know, something on psychoanalysis and history coming out. Uh, so so I, I continue to work in these in these, uh, in these uh, other fields, uh, and um, I still write a lot of op-eds and you know, book mm-hmm. reviews and newspapers. And I do believe playing a public role is important for, for professors and, and, and for university presidents. Uh, but I am very interested and have been in a lot, for a long time. In uh, what I call in this book the really the dialectic between uh, reverence and critique, mm. and uh, uh, Bruce Kimball writes about this in his work on liberal education. But that you know, on the one hand, you want people to pay attention to the great works of the past. On the other hand, you really want them to develop into critical thinkers. And I I've been um, thinking about uh, another book project that would explore the interaction of um, of these two streams of, of of thinking, the the one that goes toward reverence, what I called in my earlier works uh, piety, and the other one that goes towards inquiry and critique and uh, even deconstruction. So I, I, I'm not sure how that will come out yet. Uh, I uh, I uh, have another MOOC that I've taught called How to Change the World, oh, wow. which is uh, basically talking to experts about global problems, and people mm. have asked me if I would turn that into a book, but. Uh, meanwhile, I have my day job, so that's kind of busy
0: <laughs> certainly certainly well we'll we'll look forward to that and, and until then, what we have we have uh, uh, this book here Beyond the University: Why Liberal Education Matters. Uh, I just want to thank uh, Dr. Michael Roth for coming to join new books in education uh, and this is your host Ryan Allen. Uh, thank you everyone for listening, and uh, I hope you learned something.
1: Thanks very much, Ryan.